Thank you. And thank you for that reading. I, I'm going to invite you right now to pull out that handout, the insert that you find inside of the, uh, inside of the bulletin. On one side of it, you're going to find an outline that you can use as we go through the text that John just read for us. On the back side of it, you'll find what we call the MPG. MPG stands for Memorize and Pray and Glorify. If you're visiting with us or first time at Mac or maybe you're live streaming for the first time, MPG is, you know, when we think about it in terms of cars and gasoline, it's about how far you go down the road with a gallon of gas. Uh, the Word of God is so important that we don't want to just spend one hour on a Sunday morning in worship. We want to take that Word and allow it to resonate and to marinate inside of us and to become a way of, of living and being and interacting with people in the world. And so what we want to do is to take what we're studying this morning. There's going to be a passage for you to memorize. There's going to be some things for you to pray about this week. And then the G for glorify is, you know, some questions, some things to do, some things to think about as, as you take and absorb and are saturated with God's Word. We are going to be looking at Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And I want to start by uh, asking a question. I think all of us have done this from time to time. You're sitting around a coffee shop, maybe in a small group, maybe with uh, just friends, and you ask the question, if you're deserted on an island, you're marooned on, a, on an island, what are the five books that you would want to have with you? Hashtag desert island books. Now, I, you know, I I, you know, I thought, about, would I really tell people the five books that I would want on, the, on, uh, on this desert island? And I'm going to go ahead and give them to you. Obviously, the first one is going to be the Bible. The second one, To Kill a Mockingbird, Harper Lee. The third would be Lonesome Dove. Amen. Cannery Row by John Steinbeck. And then Garrison Keillor's Compendium of Poems called uh, Good Poems. Now, that's books. But what if we were to narrow that down a little bit and it was just maybe the two texts of the Bible if you were on that same island, what would be your desert island text? You're given two texts that you can have on that island with you. Well, a lot of people would uh, choose maybe Psalm 19. C.S. Lewis said it was one of the greatest pieces of literature, Psalm 19, greatest piece of literature ever written. Some would choose Psalm 23. Man, what a massive great message psalm 23 is right and how much comfort it gives us other people might choose john chapter 14 or john chapter 20 that talks about the resurrection how new creation has started or maybe philippians 2 that talks about you know having the mindset of christ and how christ was equal with god and was god and yet he made himself a man and not just a man but a servant and a servant who died on a cross and to have that mindset as part of God's new humanity and kingdom of faith in the world. A lot of people, myself included, would choose Romans 8. That great chapter in the middle of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. In 1971, there was a Vietnamese by the name of Hien Pham, who was given an English Bible from an American soldier. He loved to read English. And in reading that Bible over and over, he was soon converted from Buddhism to Christianity. Now, for those of us who are old enough to remember what happened a couple of years later, Vietnam fell into communist hands. Hien Pham was arrested and imprisoned for working as a translator with the American military and with American missionaries in country. 
And while he is in prison, kind of in and out in prison over a number of years, he is forbidden, while he's in prison, he is forbidden to read anything that's in English, while at the same time being avalanched by communist doctrine. And after a period of time, he began to buckle under the pressure. And one night in the darkness, he's laying in his bed. He vows that he is never going to think about God again. He's never going to think about his Christian faith. And he's never going to say another prayer. The next morning comes. He wakes up as sort of this newly freed from God kind of person. And one of the, 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 uh, the leaders in his particular part of the prison walks in and calls him by name and says, today you're in charge of cleaning the officer's latrine. He goes into the officer's latrine. You can just imagine the despair and the dismay, the despondency that, that he and Fom is feeling at this moment with all of this unimaginable filth when his eye, as he's cleaning the latrine, his eye spies a page of paper with what looks like English written on it. He reaches down carefully and he pulls it out and cleans it up and then slips it into his pocket. Later that night while he's laying in bed with a flashlight, he begins to read and what he reads are these words. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us. We'll be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And there in the, the night in his cell with Romans 8 in his hands, he begins to weep. And he cries out to God. He asks for forgiveness and there it, it comes to him. He realizes that one of the prison's officers was using the pages of the Bible as toilet paper. And the next morning, he asked that camp officer if he could have the job of cleaning that latrine daily. And through space and time, Heen Pham was able to retrieve a significant portion of the Bible. Now, friends, uh, the, the reason I tell you this story, true story, is to remind you and to remind me that the Word of God is not only true, but that it makes a difference in your life, sometimes in the most unexpected moments. In other words, the Word of God that creates everything is also a power, a Word that can change anything, even your heart, a human heart. The Word of God is is powerful. And in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, I want us to see two things that the Word of God teaches us about the gospel. The first is the old struggle, and the second is a new identity. Let's begin with the old struggle. The chapter begins with this word, therefore. Verse 1 of Romans chapter 8 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Now, one of the reasons that, you know, that word therefore is important is because what Paul has just said is linked back to something he has previously said. Now, over the years, the commentators have kind of debated exactly what that no condemnation now in Christ Jesus is linked to. But two in particular are kind of important. John R.W. Stott, who has written a lot, he's now deceased and with the Lord. Uh, many of you have read his books, excellent thinker, devout disciple of Jesus. He believed that Romans chapter 8, verse 1 went all the way back, connected to Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, where we read, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation in Christ. A very current writer by the name of Douglas Moo says that what Paul is writing in Romans chapter 8, verse 1 is really kind of connected not just to what uh, Paul has said in Romans chapter 3, but what he says at the end of chapter 7, right before Romans chapter 8. And there he says, I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Who can relate? So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. But thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation in Jesus. Now, what both of these views have in common is that they recognize that sin is a problem that can only be resolved by Christ Jesus. We all agree, every one of us here agree that everyone sins. And the only, one out of, the only way out of that is by the grace of God. We would also agree that sinful behavior is not going to be changed by good intentions. Right? You can't be good enough long enough. You can't be good enough long enough. I'm now, believe it or not, in the sixth decade of life. And health, more than ever, is important. I think about health and healthy living, having a healthy body, healthy mind, more than ever. I mean, who doesn't want to feel good? Who wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, I hope I have a, a, a ton of aches and, and pains. Nobody wakes up doing that. Everybody wants to wake up and, man, it's a beautiful day. I want to feel good. I want to be doing some stuff in this day. My desire, my great desire, is to live a healthy life. And you know what that means. You have to eat in a healthy way. But Thanksgiving is coming. <laughs> and you know what that means. Pecan pie. Pecan pie. I desire with all my strength to eat more healthy, but pecan pie and its twin brother, pumpkin pie, beckon and call my name. And with all my strength, I do not want to eat that pecan pie. But the good I want to do, I do not do, and the evil I do not want to do is the very thing I do. Who will deliver me from pecan pie? I mean, you get the point, right? We don't want to gossip. But we do, right? We don't want to slander brothers and sisters. We don't want to be negative. We don't want to gossip. But we do. We don't want to get angry and say hateful things. 
but we do. We don't want to be selfish. We don't want to be mean. We don't want to be unforgiving. But sometimes, sometimes we are. The old struggle is the old struggle. And what happens a lot of times inadvertently and sometimes subconsciously, I mean, we're not sometimes even aware that we're doing this. It just becomes the way that we think, the way that we live life. We dumb down our life as a disciple of Jesus to this. We believe that sin does not control our destiny, but it still commands our behavior. We believe that sin doesn't control our destiny, but because of our experience and because of maybe our inability to overcome some things, we still believe that it, com- it commands our behavior. And this is what brings us to Romans chapter 8 and this new identity as the uncondemned that Paul begins to help our minds to get around. Paul wants us to understand that if you're a new person in Christ, then you don't live in the old way. You don't speak in the old way. You don't act in the old way. The new you lives in a new way. Say that with me. The new you lives in a new way. This is what identifies us. We live. This new us lives in a new way. That makes sense. I mean, it follows. If you live under the great burden of a great and ponderous debt, and it's weighing you down, and in weighing you down, it's depressing you, it's affecting adversely, adversely everything in your life, your marriage is on the rocks because of just the stress and the anxiety of it. I mean, at one point in American recent history, one of the leading indicators of divorce among couples was the amount of debt that they were living with. Or you're afraid to answer the phone because of bill collectors. Or it's just, you know, you're just one crisis, just one car wreck, just one automobile uh, motor breakdown, a flat tire, a leaky faucet away from going under. And then all of a sudden, somebody comes and takes that debt away completely. It follows that you would not live in a way that would ever see you going into that kind of debt ever again. The new you lives in a new way. And Paul says that once you're in Christ, there is a new you. He says in verse 1, Now no condemnation. Now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When someone is condemned... When someone is doomed and denounced and disapproved, it is a life that is marked by punishment and pain and suffering and agonizing. It's it's a life that's characterized, you don't go anywhere in this life without feeling this sword hanging over your head. It's guilt that's just hanging over you all the time. It's like you're waiting for that sword to drop. You're just waiting for an execution. And you live with all of that and the anxiety and the pressure of it. And you feel squeezed and it weakens you and you just feel drained and you feel just sort of spread out. And then somebody comes and takes that away. It's a brand new day. It's a brand new hope. It's a brand new life. It's a brand new you. It's gone. 
But it doesn't mean that we automatically fall into a new way of living. And that's why I want us to think about these three words in closing that come from the rest of the text. The words are solution and mind and spirit. Let's start with solution. The only way to enter the uncondemned life is through Christ Jesus. Paul writes in verses 3 and 4, For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, meaning that as hard as we would try, we would never be able to uphold the law perfectly, therefore we were always going to be guilty of some part of it. God takes care of this by sending His own Son in the likeness of our flesh, sinful flesh, to be the sin offering. And so He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit the best thing that has ever happened to us is realizing just how powerless we are under the sway of sin i mean people get into trouble all the time thinking they can handle it People get themselves deeper into sin thinking that they can handle the sin. The best thing, friends, that have ever happened to us is in realizing just how powerless we are under the sway of brokenness and sin and that an even greater power, the power of the gospel, comes into our lives completely changing everything. We don't live in the uncertainty of salvation. You know, a lot of us because we haven't really allowed grace to come deeply embedded in the way that we see the world, see ourselves, see every interaction, is we kind of have a daisy theology of God and salvation. He saves me. He saves me not. He saves me. And then I do something wrong, He saves me not. And then I go to church, He saves me. And then I do something wrong, He saves me not. Then I go to church on Wednesday night, He saves me. I mean, you get the idea, Right? Say to yourself, where you're seated right now, I am in Christ and uncondemned. Say that to yourself. And say it again. I am in Christ and uncondemned. And say it over and over and over until it sinks in. The second part of this is mind. This is the middle section of our text, verses 5 through 8, and five times the word mind appears. Paul is saying that you have to get your mind around what it means to live by the Spirit of God, to live that uncondemned life in Christ. So he says in verses 6 and 7, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. By the way, something that I pray nearly on a daily basis that my mind be governed by the Spirit in order for my mind to be, my life, to be marked by life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. But God has given us through His Spirit the ability, and we get our mind around this, that there is a different kind of life that we live. It's essential as disciples to get our mind around the fact that our lives are different because God is making us different. We have a different way of looking at everything. We embrace the presence of God that we at one time abhorred and or tried to ignore. We are awakened to spiritual realities that we were once blind to. We embrace wisdom 
that we once rejected. We begin to hate the sin we once loved, and we surrender to the Spirit of God. And we realize that this is a work of God in us. We know we need it. We anticipate it. It's our mindset. And so we say, sin is not my master. Say that to yourself right there in the pew. Sin is not my master. Say this, I am in Christ and uncondemned. And say, sin is not my master. Which leaves us now with the last word, which is spirit. Paul writes in verse 9. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh. But guess what? If you're in Christ, you are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed... The Spirit of God lives in you. The Spirit of God comes and takes up residence in you rather than just making a visit. Now, there's a big difference, right, between dwelling and visiting. You know, years ago when I was still living at home, we were living up in uh, the, the, uh, the D.C. area, uh, my mother's family lived in the Metroplex. You know, every other year at Christmas, we'd make that long trek from D.C. through Virginia, through Tennessee, through Arkansas, and then we'd get to Texas and we'd think, oh, we're nearly there, and it'd be like another thousand hours before we get there getting across the state. But we would always end up, and we would be there, and we were welcomed, and it was great. We ate the best of food. We were hugged all the time. We, we enjoyed ourselves. It was Christmas. There were presents, but then we left. We have a lot of people who come, Ellen and I, we have a lot of people who come and they stay at our home. People visit and then they leave. People visit and then they're gone. What Paul is saying is that the Spirit of God does not come to visit you. The Spirit of God comes to dwell in you, to live in you. In you. I mean, think about the terminology in verses 9 through 11. He talks about the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Him. Paul is using all of these terms interchangeably to mean that God is the one who takes up residence in you. And it is by the power of the Spirit that you are able to grow into the kind of person and to look like the kind of person that you were always meant to be. You have to get your mind around the fact that things are different. You are no longer condemned. You are the uncondemned. And not only that, you get your mind around the fact that the Spirit of God, God Himself, is dwelling in you, giving you the ability to do what you can't do on your own. You need the power of God to save you and to sanctify you, to make you holy. Remember the story of Hin Pham that I told at the beginning of this message? I mean, here is Hin Pham who is a Christian, he's struggling with his face, just the burden of being in jail and prison, all of that stuff. And one day, in the muck, he reaches down and he pulls out the Word of God. And he washes it off and reads it later that night, and it just changes everything. It reminds me of the fact that the Word of God, Jesus, John chapter 1, verse 1, reaches down into the muck, and pulls us up and out and cleans us up and blesses us every day. If you want to become a disciple of Jesus today, a follower of Jesus today, 
we're going to give you that opportunity. I'm going to be out by the green wall, out in the foyer. Come by and talk to me about it. Or, or, or find somebody that has a shepherd badge or a staff badge. Or, or the person next to, to you in the pew. Just say, I want to become a disciple of Jesus. How do I do that? And we will make sure that we spend time with you and, and, and clearly and thoroughly explain to you what it means to hear Jesus' call to follow him and to follow him as a disciple who is uncondemned and has the Spirit of God living in them. And let's take this moment right now to praise God together. Let's stand and sing.